If you would, um, Bibles now and turn to the book of Philippians. I hope each one has a, a Bible. We have a Bible up uh, on the table. If I think it's good practice that we, we have the Word in front of us, and so we're not just, you're double-checking what I'm saying is, is, is a good way of uh, confirming that what I am indeed saying is in the Word, and it's true. And so let's, let's turn to the book of Philippians. Uh, as Steve said, we're continuing on the series of messages from Philippians, as you know, or may have forgotten. Um, Steve and I are preaching from Philippians, um, this wonderful letter. Um, not necessarily an organized tandem, but we believe God has something uh, to encourage us this morning. And so our text this morning is in chapter 4, so Philippians chapter 4. Um, but before we dig into it, let's, let's pray. Abba Father, we come to you now, we praise you, and we glorify your name, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's living and active, and it's able to correct us, Lord, and to speak into our lives, into our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that we have your word, the truth, and I pray that we would apply it by your spirit, by your grace. And so, Lord, help us and teach us today, in Jesus' name, amen. And so, let's look at um, Philippians chapter 4. This passage here, um, verses 1 to 9, is, is like a quick summary of what Paul in, in this letter has been teaching and encouraging us, uh, the believers in particular, the church in Philippi. Um, remember, the, the Philippian church is the church that Paul planted previously, and uh, he's writing to them. And the key things being standing firm in the gospel, and this a partnership in proclaiming the good news. Uh, another big theme is, is unity. Unity in the Spirit. Having one mind. And striving side by side. Um, you know, laboring for the gospel. Laboring together. And also to be joyful always. You know, those are the key themes and highlights that we see in the letter. And in this passage, Paul hits them in a quick succession. And uh, as you read this passage, you can hear Paul's pastoral care. He really does care deeply for this church. You can feel his deep affection and love towards this church. And uh, we see here as well in, in our text that he gives a, a series of commands, and there's a number of uh, prescriptive things, a, least, a list of do's and don'ts, but it's, it's packaged in such a tender, lovingly way that uh, hopefully it might just inspire um, us to obey them. And so, Let's look at verse 1. Uh, I know Steve finished with, with this one, but I'd like to just remind us and to connect our passages together. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul concludes his last segment by reminding the church of their identity and their true citizenship, which is in heaven, urging them to press on and keep going. He ends it by saying, therefore, my brothers, stand firm in the Lord. This word, to stand firm, is often used to describe uh, a soldier in his post. It's like Paul is giving the church uh, a military command. But with that, he expresses his love and longing for them. They are his joy and crown, despite the fact that the circumstance that he is in wouldn't typically cause someone to be joyful. Remember, he's in, under house arrest here. Um, you won't be joyful writing this letter uh, when you're under house arrest, but that is what biblical Christian joy is. And we'll talk more um, about that later. 
And so we come to verse 2. He says here, I entreat uh, Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, these women in the Lord. Have you ever thought about your name being mentioned in Scripture? Um, and be struck by the fact that it's going to be there forever and ever? Like, like David, um, the boy who would be king, playing this giant with his sling and his smooth stone. Or like Noah, who builds this great ark. Those are great names. And uh, now those are the positive ones. They're told to us in a positive light. And there's also names that are forever immortalized in Scripture and you know, not in the best light, uh, shall we say, like, like Judas or Jezebel or something like that. But Paul here in verse 2 mentions two names, Yodia and Sinsiki. I'm going to go with that pronunciation. I'm going to butcher it. Um, some people, I don't know how to, is it Yodia? Or, I know it sounds like Yoda, but <laughs> Yo. we'll go with Yodia and Sinsiki, right? Greek names. Um, some people say Sintichi, but look, we'll go with Sintichi. So he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi to what? And um, what is that? What is to entreat? That is to appeal to them, to beseech, um, to beg almost these women to what? To agree in the Lord. And why would Paul address these women if not perhaps for a disagreement between them? Paul is applying um, here all the things he said earlier in this letter about unity, about being united and having one mind. And he's applying this right now in this real scenario right now or at that time in that church, there are these women who are not agreeing with one another at least. And whatever it was, it was significant enough for Paul to address. And remember, this was a letter to a real church, a real body of believers where real names and real families existed. But this is also the inspired Word of God. And so it's here, this letter is uh, here for us today. There's a benefit to mentioning these names um, for us right now because our church here, our small little passage Baptist church, is also made up of real people with real names and real lives. And notice that Paul qualifies his appeal to these women by saying in the Lord. He's not telling them to agree for the sake of agreeing or just, just get on with it, just get along or something like that. He says, agree in the Lord. Did you notice that he says this as well in verse 1? And it says, stand firm in the Lord. And then later on he says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Everything they were to do, they were to do in the Lord. Now the detail of the disagreement weren't even mentioned or hinted at here. And whatever it may have been, it wasn't worth mentioning when you think about it, uh, when you think about what's at stake here, okay? Spiritual unity is so important in the church um, that it must be prioritized. Paul in his other letters, he says to the Ephesian church, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he says to the Colossians, a different church, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. See, to maintain peace and unity, we have to bear with one another. We, we put up almost, this is what we call it here in Ireland. We put up with each other, but we forgive one another. <clears throat> and then he ver in verse 3, look at me with verse 3, he says, he mentions another person. He says, 
um, this other person, true companion, to help these women, to perhaps mediate between them, help them, or help maintain the spirit of unity in that church. Uh, some commentators believe that this true companion mentioned here is actually a real name, which means true companion. And, uh, and so it's another Greek name, so I'm going to butcher this. It's, it's Sisygos, right? It's Sisygos. But, or whatever the case, Paul might just be, mentioned, will be saying this as anyone who would be my true companion over there, help these women. And... Um, he says, <clears throat> he says to them, agree in the Lord. And for us here in, in our church here, let's be peacemakers. Let's maintain unity. Um, and what greater binding agent is there amongst a diverse congregation than our Lord Himself? And, you know, let's look around the room for a second. You, know, you can see that we're all different and not just subtly different, totally different. Um, and yet, we can be here sitting together under God's Word. We're a peculiar bunch, you know, uh, us Christians. The church is a strange group in that although we come from different backgrounds, we come from, we're different nationalities, we're different ethnicities, walks of life, um, we're differing in our Christian faith, we can stand united praising God this morning. We have a greater common interest than we have difference, differences, believe it or not. The Lord and His gospel unites us, and He gives us uh, one spirit. You know, in this church, as we share, continue to share life together, we inevitably will, um, and probably already have, you know, collided with each other, and we'll discover that there are many things that we just don't agree with, we disagree on, be it in what, taste in music and other preferences. We just don't see eye to eye in many other things, and that's true. Even our personalities might clash. Um, there are those of us who are introverts, there are those who are extroverts, there are those who are quiet, more quiet than some, and there are some, uh, some of us who are louder than some. And we have agreeable personalities, and we have strong personalities. But these uh, characteristics are actually part of God's design. We're not meant to be exact copies of one another. We should praise God and celebrate our dissimilarities, because in the Lord, we can achieve harmony in our diversity. And I, I think we should celebrate that. And that's why Paul can say, be united together. He knows full well that we're all different. And the church in Philippi are all different people, but he can call us to be united. And Paul can say in this instance, uh, addressing his sisters in Christ, that they are you know, true believers. You notice what he says in verse 3. They have, uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, along with this guy Clement. We have, um, they have labored together. They're fellow believers. And he hammers the point home by saying, whose names are in the book of life. I mean, what great assurance is there to be told that your name right now is in the book of life? And the same is true for anyone who is in Christ. Our names are in the book of life. But we labor together to achieve the common goal, this partnership in the gospel 
for the sake of our Lord. And whenever we might think um, we might be inclined to split apart from a fellow believer, and it may be due to something that we disagree on, uh, probably, just ask yourself maybe, just begin wrestle with these questions. Do we have the same Lord? Don't we love Him the same? Don't we want to sing His praises? And as you wrestle with those uh, greater uh, stuff that we have in common, we might just discover that whatever it is, whatever disagreement we might have, it's not worth falling out over. And it shouldn't be. Uh, just remember, you know, in eternity, you'll end up bumping into that person one way or another sooner or later. So in this world, we might as well get along. And we have a great, um, great uh, something in common, which is Christ. And he says here in verse 4, what does he say in verse 4? He gives a series of commands. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in the Lord. And he repeats himself. It's almost as if he's saying, I know I've harped on enough about joy and about rejoicing. Um, and he has, in fairness, he's couple, I mentioned this already in, in, his, in this letter. And altogether, about 16 times in the whole of the letter, he mentions rejoicing and joy. But he says, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. There's no harm in repeating it. He, he says in chapter 3, you know, it's no trouble for me at all to be saying the same things, you know. And it's safe for, for you, he says. So rejoice. And joy is mentioned so much in, in this letter that Philippians, as the book, is known as the book of joy. And that is interesting. And that is, uh, you know, because Paul wrote the letter when he was under arrest. You know, he was chained probably 24-7 to a Roman guard um, while he was awaiting trial. And which may result in him being executed. To which he says in chapter 1, even if that happens, even if I die, to die is gain. You know, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But you see, he can be joyful in his incarceration because joy is not rooted in this life or in our present circumstances. Joy, Christian joy, is rooted in Jesus. It's rooted in heaven. It's forward-looking. It sees above what we see right now in front of us. And it has eternity in its scope. That's why we can be joyful. And some of us right now, and some of you that I know of, are experiencing various trials and difficulties. And Brendan has just prayed with some of them, with, with Evelyn. Um, some people are experiencing pain suffering, heartaches, chronic illnesses, dark days, and even depression. Paul is not telling us to put on a fake smile. He's not saying rejoice and put on a fake smile or to be happy clappy or to, to be artificially jolly. He's not saying that. He can say rejoice and rejoice always because it's not... You might have tears streaming down your face, but as you look and you look to your Savior and you look to Jesus for our hope, our redemption, our salvation, our reward, we can have this inexplicable joy and security like no other. He doesn't, Paul doesn't belittle the hardships uh, that we're going through and that they're going through. 
but he's asking us to remember why and how we can be joyful and that we can even find this joy in the midst of our storms, in our own individual personal storms, in our darkest hours. You can find joy because in, even in those times you can find Jesus. And he says in verse 5, Let your re- reasonableness be known to everyone. And what does that mean? It, it simply means that Philippians, Philippian church, your graciousness, your patience, your leniency, your mercy, your generosity, your tender love and care and gentleness toward one another, let that be the hallmark, uh, your hallmark as followers of Christ. Let that reputation be the rumor that spreads across the land. Let the gossip about you be that of your love for your Savior and love for one another. He says, just be known as those people. Be known, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Society might well scorn, uh, scorn you for being that. And they do. But in the end, they can't really fault those qualities, can they? If you're caring and loving towards each other, I mean, what, what's the worst society can say? You know, we just keep doing that. We, we should be known as the people who love each other, who care for one another, who does things with other incentive than I actually do care for you. And one of the things that we can demonstrate that is by thinking about others, praying especially for others. And to pray about those things, you need to be aware of the stuff that they're going through. And so, you know, that is the Christian life. And he says here in verses 6 to 7, um, the following verses I think is one of those well-cherished pieces of Scripture that many of us treasure, and rightly so. And what does verse 6 say? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Um, I remember my earliest memory when, when I was dating um, my girlfriend then at the time, now wife, and it was about 10 years ago now, and uh, she texted me this verse, and I'm just remembering what it was about. I think I was going through exams in college or something, but she just sent me this encouragement, this particular verse, and it's a good um, piece of Scripture to treasure and to take to heart. And in these verses... Paul, knowing the concerns and worries of the Philippian church, he encourages them and reminds them that the Lord is near. See, notice there at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. That's simply to say He's spatially close by. He's right there. He's near. He's not too far to reach out. And he says, the Lord is near. And you can present your request to Him, whatever they may be. Um, whatever anxieties, stresses, and worries, in everything we can present it to Him in prayer. We can lay them all before God. And Paul encourages them and us to be a people of prayer. And especially during times when we would be gripped with anxiety. Haven't we all felt anxious in various levels? And what causes the distress that we've all felt and experienced? What causes these things? See, the thing is, 
the current reality, and I say current reality because there's a coming reality when, when these things won't be the case, is that life and life right now in this world is sure to bring us stress and worries, uh, different kinds of trials and difficulties, circumstances, uh, particularly ones that we don't have control over. They catch us um, and we begin to panic. That's what causes us anxiety. And as I look in this room and on the people that I love and know here, you know, are you a parent anxious about your little one not sleeping at night? Are you stressed with work, the workload that you have and the relationships that you have with your coworkers and colleagues? Are you distressed by the fact that purchasing a property in this overinflated Seller's market is nigh impossible. Are you worried about your family member that suffer from various kinds of ailments and chronic illnesses? Is your heart aching when there are fallouts in your family and that relationships are just difficult with your family members? Are you lose, uh, losing sleep over the state of your finances? Are you troubled with the state that our country is in right now? Are you perturbed by the impact of this pandemic that doesn't seem to ever stop or ever seem to go away? Are you unsettled by the increasing moral decay that we see in society? Is your mind plagued with negative comments from others, from yourself, that keep you depressed? The list could go on and on and much longer. I could look up all the synonyms for anxiety and worries. And there's so much and we're all too familiar with them. But you know what this list tells us? Um, our, our series of anxieties. You know what it tells us? It tells us that we have all the more reason to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. For each of those items, we should pray. Remember the memory verse that we try to remember by singing about it in Thessalonians? It says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I believe part of the way of God encouraging us to keep praying is He has these circumstances for us, right? We, we don't run out of things that causes us worry and so we don't run out of reasons to pray all the time. Prayer is the antidote that Paul gives the Philippian church and it's also ours today. For every reason to be anxious is also a reason to pray and to present these requests to God. See, holding on to these things and that makes us anxious and makes us worried is not good for us. It's definitely not a good, sustainable, long-term solution. God, with open arms, calls us to lay them all and often at His feet. Our Lord, you know, our Lord knows a thing or two about being distressed. Um, do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says here in, in the Gospel of Luke, He says, And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly. Speaking about Jesus. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, we can see here, is in great distress. And what, what do you think, what could possibly cause Jesus' distress? And this is Jesus we're talking about. What could cause him such agony? 
Is it because in the next few hours, every single one of His disciples will desert Him? Is it because of that? Is it because that He will go through these sham trials and be passed around, falsely accused and ridiculed? Is it because that He would be flogged so severely He'd be, barely be able to stand? Is it because the soldiers would hammer a crown of thorns on His head and be mocked for being this king? Is it because He'd be carrying this heavy cross across the city and onto that hill? Is it because His arms will be stretched and nails be driven through His hands and feet? Is it because He'd be lifted up that cross for everyone to see in humiliation, for insults to be hurled at Him? Is it because He would take on Himself our sins and become a curse for us? Or is it because He would take the brunt of the full wrath of God, paying it all? Of course, He was distressed. But you know what, Jesus exemplifies for us in his distress he comes to a polluted place and he presents them to his father he prays and prays you see the higher the intensity of your anxiety the more earnest your prayer becomes it should be whatever concern and worry we bring it to God in prayer you see Jesus he gets it um, <clears throat> His, he knows. He understands. Jesus sympathizes with all of us. Jesus empathizes. We, we have this verse in Hebrews. He says, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who have been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus gets it. And that's why we can present it to him as one who understands. He's not distant. He's very near and is very approachable. You know, um, Paul is, dis is not dismissing the reality of what causes anxiety in people, but rather he places them in the right perspective. We can do something about our anxieties and concerns. And what are we to do with them? He's not saying they don't exist. They do. But what are we to do with our anxieties? He says, we are to present them all to God in prayer. You know, this reminds me of a song, which I'm sure right now you probably know what it is. And you know what song this is, I'm thinking? It says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Joseph Scriven, back in the early 1800s, he wrote that at that time, he wrote it as a poem, actually. And that poem, you know what it was called? The poem was titled, Pray Without Ceasing. And he wrote that poem to his mother to encourage her, who was at the time living in Ireland, and she was very ill. But he was far away. He was in Canada at the time. And so to encourage her, he wrote that poem. But later on, it became a song. And I have no doubt that he was inspired by Philippians when he coined those words. And this text specifically, we can present all our anxieties to God, and it says, in everything, by prayer. That includes even the small worries, you know, small to large concerns, we are to present them all. 
Jesus, and I love Jesus' words to this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The Lord is always near, nearby, waiting for us to come to Him. Doesn't this remind you of, of, a, of that friend? And I hope we all have this friend, that friend who only needs to open up their arms and say, come here. And then you're in the brink, and you burst, you burst out, and you break down, and you collapse into that person's arms. And you feel their warm embrace, and this friend might say, it's okay, or it's, everything's going to be okay. You feel that comfort. Because whatever the situation might be, you might have a, a tension or a falling out that's just mounting and mounting, and you're just in the verge, and then you have that moment of collapse. The Lord Jesus is and should be that friend for everyone, for all of us. And the comforting thing about that fact that's that Jesus, this is Jesus we're talking about. That friend, though maybe well-meaning, they couldn't do all things. But this friend, Jesus, He is God. And we can, when He makes a promise, especially the promise that I will give you rest, we can sure depend on it. Another verse to treasure and uh, to revisit often is, is Jesus reassuring us that the Father knows what we need. In Matthew 6, in the Gospel of Matthew, He says, Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And I love this. Are you not of more value than they? And that's a rhetorical question, of course. Of course you are infinitely more valuable. As His child in Christ, though we may be unworthy, we may be undeserving. Our worth is immeasurable to Him. It's, it's immeasurable because of the immeasurable cost that was paid to purchase us for our redemption. We are not worthy, but we are worth that much to Him. That's a wonderful paradox. And I'm thinking of another song, actually. Maybe I should sing it or what. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. We're not worthy, but we're worth that much to Him. Are you not of more value than any of the creation, than all the birds, than anything? He gave His life for us. How great, John tells us, how great is the love the Father has lavished. I love that word, lavished, to excessively give in abundance. The love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. John is hammering that point home to, in that letter that we are the children of God. He has given us the right and the spirit to call God Father. And what do children do? Mateo, my son, you know, he puts up his little arms and he calls out, Papa, Papa. And probably more often, Mama, Mama, Mama. 
He absolutely depends on us as parents to keep him alive, to keep him safe, to comfort him when he's distraught, and for cuddles, for that security. I know that's just a simple little example, but that is how it should be with us, our Heavenly Father. We are created to depend on Him. We are not created to be independent of Him. God is to supply and provide, and we are to rest. That was the arrangement. And so, Paul says here, we are to present, uh, we have come to God in prayer, but he also says, in uh, and supplication with thanksgiving. You know, what's that word, supplication? That's a big word, supplication. It's the action of asking. To ask earnestly. To make requests with a humble attitude. We're not to ask God in a demanding way or with a sense of entitlement. Kind of like, remember the, the younger son in the parable, the prodigal? He says, demanding from his father his inheritance. We are not to come with that attitude. We are to ask earnestly with humble attitude. And Paul adds, with thanksgiving. Having a thankful and grateful heart helps us to come to God in the right spirit. And it reminds us, and we should know this full well, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. And when we present a request to God, when we cast our cares on Him, what happens? Paul tells us here, look at me in verse 7, what happens when we do that? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what's going to happen. There is this peace that we can experience, and this is something that we can't quite, you know, describe in words. It's beyond comprehension sometimes. This calm, this assurance and security that only God can provide. And I'm encouraged uh, many times when I hear my brothers and sisters tell me that when they've surrendered this big concern to God, they can say and testify that I have peace. I have this sense of relief when I do that. And I'm encouraged to, to see that in action because, you know, and I can certainly attest to that uh, for myself in my own Christian life. And it's not one of those positivity thinking or, you know, power of suggestion or just, you know, have positive vibes. It's, it's not like that. It's, it's more, you know, it's inexplicable divine grace. And that song, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I don't mean for this sermon to become a medley, but whatever reminds, whatever helps to remind me of those truths, I'll sing. You think Shane's the only one who sings in sermons. Um, but, but today, you know, in our modern word, world, um, we have psychiatrists, we have psychologists, um, crudely speaking, we have professionally trained friends to help us cope, to help alleviate some of the problems uh, with worry and unrest. Do you know what Jesus is called in the Old Testament? In that prophecy in Isaiah, I just love this, He's addressed as Wonderful Counselor. Imagine a counseling session with Jesus Himself. That's prayer, right? You imagine this scenario with a psychologist and you lie down on the couch and you pour out your heart 
and the psychologist will try and assess and help you. But in prayer, Jesus is our wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. And I encourage all of us, and myself included, to treasure all of these verses close to our hearts because they will remind us to go to the Lord in prayer. I hope more so, more often and often, uh, our dependency on Him as we progress through our Christian life should increase, not decrease. And, you know, as we, you know, being a Christian in our journey, we can we find out that we are just ever depending on Him. We come to the Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm helpless. In fact, I'm more helpless than I, I think I am. And I need you every single day. And as we do that, this does something. You know what it does? It says in verse 7, This will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It shields and protects us from those lies. And Paul gives us one of those practical things um, that we can do in relation to having a healthy mind. And what does he say in verse 8? Look at me in verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And who best embody these wonderful, positive adjectives? Of course, the Lord Jesus. We should think on Him more and more. But I think furthermore than that, Paul is commanding the Philippian church and us that, uh, you know, we're reminded a few weeks back, I think by Brendan, to take our our thoughts captive, right? There's this conscious um, taking hold of what goes on through our minds. We should be conscientiously proactive about what goes through in our minds. Um, this list, you know, in verse 8, is almost it's a good litmus test if, if what you're thinking about, what you're pondering about is good. Take every thought captive, Paul says to the Corinthians. To the Roman church, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but, by, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And by testing, um, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Scripture, I believe, is the best way to cleanse our minds. If we fill it with those verses, if we fill it with God's Word, by reading it, you can't think about it if you don't read it, to meditate on it, to memorize them. The psalmist says in, in 119, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Um, As often as we, you know, sanitize our hands, we should sanitize our minds with the Word. And he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice, uh, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul here is imparting this command. And it's something that we can, um, not only that we can actively do, but we should, we must We must absolutely practice these things. No point hearing about it and not putting them into practice. We are commanded to obey. You trust Jesus? Do you say you depend on Him? Therefore, you obey Jesus. And admittedly, and I'd be the first to put my hand up, there's oftentimes a disconnect here. 
I might think that I trust in Him and I, I depend on Him, but when I disobey, how could I truly say that I trust Him? At least at that moment, I don't, when I don't obey. You see, faith goes hand in hand with our actions. In fact, outflows from our faith, joyful obedience. And just to finish with this, this command that Paul gives here is not unlike what Jesus left His disciples, remember, in the Great Commission before He ascended into heaven. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He says, Practice these things, obey these things, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Paul says here, the God of peace, the Prince of peace himself, is with us and will be with us always. Let's take that to heart. Let's keep going in him even this week. Let's pray. Our Father God, I praise you, Lord, and I give you glory for your wonderful truths. They bring such encouragement to my heart. I hope and pray that it does so as well to my brothers and sisters. Thank you that you're speaking truth to us. Oftentimes ourselves, our internal critic, others, the world, even the devil himself will try and speak to us things that are simply not true. <clears throat> and so, Lord, I, I pray that you, who do not lie, who could never lie, speak truth to us today. And we can trust in it because you are truth itself. You said you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, help us to bank on these verses, to treasure these things in our hearts so that in those times of anxieties, we know what to do with them. We can run to you with them. We can lay them all at your feet and you can take them from our shoulders. And so, Lord, thank you for this church. I pray that as we share life together, and though we may be different, and though we might clash, we know who to look to for unity and for joy. And so, Lord, thank you for this time. Help us to remember you now in this Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen.